Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. learned to really appreciate in full what we mean when we say time is precious you know we think of it as something to spend or to save like a commodity but you can't time is not transferable it's not something you can you can't wait till you're 85 to start having fun times it's no use cutting back on your hobbies as you say and then hoping that you'll be able to go running running up mountains in in 10 10 weeks time when you haven't done any exercise at all you need a more relaxed and balanced perspective that allows you to find time for everything that you want to do. Whoever controls time controls people. The insightful words of British journalist, writer and editor Catherine Bly from her new book, On Time, Finding Your Pace in a World Addicted to Fast, published by HarperCollins. Hello, how are you? And you're very welcome to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's lovely to have your company this evening. Well, on tonight's show, we're going to unpack time with British writer and journalist Catherine Bly and ask what is time and why has it become so complicated? In On Time, Catherine Bly argues we treat time as a thing to spend, save, waste, lose or kill. But time is not a commodity. It is a dimension of experience and in the final analysis, it's all we have. It's our only vehicle to be alive in. So how do we change our attitude to time? And is it possible to stop clock watching? My name's Catherine Blythe. I'm the author of a book called On Time, Finding Your Pace in a World Addicted to Fast. Um, I was inspired to write this book because I seem to be constantly busy and rushing around. At the end of the day, I found the to-do list was always longer, not shorter. So I wanted to explore why time in our lives has changed and what we can do about it. Catherine, really well done on the book. I have to say I really enjoyed it and tried to read the book as slow as I possibly could. Um, it was a very interesting read and you, you bring up some remarkable case studies in it and we might go into that a little later. I might throw you a big wide open question to kick things off. Do you think, <laughs> um Do you think our understanding of time shapes our lived experience of the world, how we understand the world and how we get through the world? I think... Time is one of those things that we take for granted and and we really misunderstand it. We think of time as something you see on a clock or on your wristwatch or perhaps flickering in the corner of um, the screen on your computer or your iPhone. What we tend to overlook is that our sense of time is absolutely central to everything we do. You know, we may not be able to smell it or touch it, but... What I uncovered during the research for my book was how central our sense of time is to who we are and and in terms of our behavior. So um, and there's a fascinating um, um, body of research about people's time perspective um, conducted by a man called Philip Zimbardo. He, he launched it, really. And he looks at how your attitudes towards time change your approach to life and it's quite subtle, really. It almost seems obvious, but actually it's quite remarkable if you consider it. Um, he, he 
divides people's outlooks towards time in, in terms of positive and negative. So people have a past positive attitude, which sounds a bit like a grammatical formulation, but what that really means is you have warm, happy memories, or, or perhaps you have very negative ones, the other end of the spectrum. And there are people who have a kind of balanced view of the present, who are quite excited and zesty, or or, or quite negative and fatalistic. Um, we all carry around within us different beliefs about time and our ability to shape our lives, you know, whether we can can do anything really to make our future better, whether we dread the future and feel that time is something that happens to us. These little shades in our personality um, can dictate how we behave. And what Philip Zimbardo's shown through research and experiment is that you can actually change your time perspective. And if you make it more balanced, by which he would say... Um, make it more positive, really, have a more optimistic outlook for the future, have a warmer um, sense of the past. Even bad memories can be made to feel better if you feel that you've learned something useful from the experience. You can actually work on your sense of time and it will change your outlook and your approach to life. Could it be argued that uh, being busy makes us feel somewhat important, that we have a kind of a greater purpose and that on days that we're not so busy and we're just moping around, pottering around the place, that we can possibly feel we don't have the same status in the world? I think so very much. I think the trouble with busyness, it's tremendously exciting. I mean, goodness, when your phone's bleeping with another message, it's very hard not to pick it up and take a look and feel that something amazing is about to happen. Having a, a packed diary, it sends a message to you that your life is purposeful and and that you're in demand. Who, who doesn't want that? But at the same time, I've noticed a tendency in myself and lots of people to kind of pack the schedule or to feel like you're, you're operating on sort of multiple channels simultaneously, to think that that's, that's making you more more productive or more important when actually it it can be having the opposite effect. I mean, I'm I'm a woman, I have children, I work, you know, I try and run a family life, you know, listen to me, Mrs. Smug. And sometimes I do buy into this idea of myself as Mrs. Multitasker, you know, as if I'm some Hindu goddess with, you know, eight pairs of arms doing trying to do so many things at once. Um, and and that's, that can make me feel quite good. But when you drill down and see what you achieve when you're operating in a state where you're only giving bits of your attention to everything or you're so pressurized worrying about how you're going to get to the next thing that you don't actually occupy the moment you're in. This way of approaching life, which I think is being forced upon people, even if they don't necessarily seek it, simply because interruption, distraction and you know, fast-moving um, business lives are more and more prevalent. It's actually quite inefficient in many ways. I mean, for example, they multitasking, they reckon it's about 30%. It takes 30% longer to complete a couple of tasks which you're trying to do simultaneously rather than doing them one after the other. And the problem with multitasking doesn't just stop there. There's, you're much more likely to commit errors. They reckon twice as many more more importantly, I think, um, is that as soon as you're trying to do lots of things at once, it's a straightforward mathematical problem. Do 10 things at, at, at once. If one of them goes wrong, then you're not just experiencing a problem with one thing. You're experiencing it with nine others, you know. Um, and the 
interrupted, distractible world that we now live in. You know, our lives are threaded with social media and technology in ways that open up loads of fantastic opportunities. It's really exciting. By the same token, we we are now used to living in a climate of time pressure, which is imposed by the fact that you're always being interrupted. I mean, if you do email, which nearly everyone does, that probably takes up about a third of your working day. If you work in an open plan office, which again, many people do, if you're always being subjected to noise, well, they say that even mild background noise, like in a you know gentle gossip in a very sotto voce cafe, that will deplete your ability to concentrate by 20%. In so many subtle and insidious ways, um, living in a kind of busy, noisy, buzzy environment while stimulating and distracting in a kind of fun way also makes it much, much harder to actually drill down and do things. And what we don't appreciate, and again, something I learned researching my book, is that our ability to pay attention is a function of our willpower. They are sort of interchangeable. And our capacity to pay attention, to concentrate, and to stick at something that we may not want to do gets weaker over the course of the day. And the more we're forced to switch between tasks or our attention is distracted, you know, when your mind is hopping from one thing to the next or someone pops over and asks if you've got a second just to discuss something, that exerts this enormous cognitive load. You know, it's much harder to get your train of thought back on track than you might think which, again, depletes your willpower, depletes your ability to pay attention. That's why operating in a climate of busyness, a kind of culturally driven busyness, it can make you feel important. Your heart might be racing, but it's probably stress rather than the excitement of accomplishment. And that kind of stress has, a, has an enormous range of impacts, which we should question, I think, not least the fact that when you are stressed, your ability to think and to think creatively really does diminish. Yes, you'll get things done if you've got a deadline. I mean, someone who works in radio, I'm sure you watch the clock a lot and you're used to deadlines and you know that, yes, you'll get the job done when you need to do it. But is it necessarily going to be your best work or are you more likely to fall back on, you know, received habits, you know, less original solutions? These are the kind of trade-offs we're making all the time when we work in a busy environment or when we you know, take ourselves off somewhere quiet, if, by some miracle, we can find somewhere quiet. But we all eventually have to face what is our relationship with time in whatever way it is, whether it's dysfunctional or not. And, you know, do you think that if we let go of that controlling idea on time and the obsessions with time... And what that, time management yeah, has a kind of... Yeah, that we can actually inadvertently and ironically open up time because we're less obsessed. Yeah, well, I mean, the fastest way to not enjoy the moment you're in is probably to think about how much time you've left to do it in. You know, watching the clock is very seldom the sign of someone having a really good time. And you certainly don't want to see someone looking at their watch when they're talking to you or kissing you. Um, I mean, as soon as we think about time, we are probably not enjoying it. There was a brilliant study I came across. Um, in Harvard, some, some psychology students came up with a really simple way of testing people's experience you know, subjective happiness. They gave them an app to uh, go on their phone or whatever device um, that would, at irregular random moments during the day, 
ask them two questions. What are you doing and what are you thinking about? And it found that, surprisingly perhaps, um, the things that we think will make us really happy don't necessarily. You know, if you're sunbathing, that might not make you happy. If you're running, um, you might feel terrible. The, there's only one sign of, you know, or one kind of guaranteed measure of someone feeling happy. It's when their mind is on what they're doing at that particular moment. So, you know, a constant self-consciousness of thinking, right, my day is scheduled into five-minute blocks, and if I do this by this point, then I'll achieve this, and then I'll have had a good day. I think it's a bit um, misleading. One of my motivations for the book was not to say, look, we're all time poor. This is how to be more productive and pack more in. It was actually to say, no, let's stand back. Let's question this idea that productivity and busyness are the highest possible goals. Let's see what it would mean to be time rich and I think you can sort of have your cake and eat it I think if you feel busy then slowing down you'll find you are more effective I think if you stop obsessing about every minute and start looking at the rhythm of time in your life you will actually get a lot more done anyway and feel a a bit happier You write somewhere that um, when you became a mother, life entered a reverse time zone. I thought that was really interesting. And I'd say that any mother would say to you that their relationship with time changed enormously, if not absolutely fundamentally, when they became a mother. On so many levels. I mean, there's sleep. I challenge you to find any new parent who isn't obsessing about sleep. And if they do, then I'm sorry, I don't want to speak to them. I hate them because you just don't have it. And when you're in a state of exhaustion, for a start, you learn something basic that although most of us live within a 24-hour cycle, the circadian cycle, babies just don't. And you have to train them into time. I think, yeah, that that was the moment where I realized that I'd lost a lot of freedom and a lot of my time seemed to evaporate trying to master new, incredibly basic tasks. Just leaving the house seemed to take me about an hour and a half by which point then someone would want to go to sleep or have their nappy changed. You just, you feel like you're running very hard through glue and moving exactly an inch forward every day. Um, But it also taught me other things about time in terms of sheer enjoyment. I mean, when you're with a child and when you're not worrying about the next meal and you're relaxed, um, you do get the, you, you get some sort of weariness peeled from your eyes if you see the world anew again through a child. And the incredible joy and fascination of just about everything, that's that's really fantastic. And they don't need to meditate or learn mindfulness or to be in the moment. That's that's just what children do. And But as my children grew older, simply observing how you sort of try and break them to the wheel of time, you know, getting a child to understand that, hurry up, we need to be there on time, is a meaningful thing and worth respecting rather than the reason to have a nervous breakdown. You know, you, you break them into it. And it it, ju- it certainly made me question some of the obsessions we have. You know, the friends, I have many friends in West London, a lot of whom have given up big, important careers where they, they micromanaged every second of their lives. And now, unfortunately, they're micromanaging every second of their children's. And just being late, being late to something for them is an, isn't an excuse for a nervous breakdown. But I think children can teach you a lot simply about, you know, relishing the moments as well as, of course, something fundamental, which is, you know, as you may have heard from your friends, I don't know if you have children, 
but the days can seem incredibly long and weary, and yet the year's terribly short. <laughs> short. And that's not just because you're sentimental about them growing older. It's because so much of your time is spent trying to stop your child from doing something really dangerous or memorable that there isn't that much to remember. It's just a little merry blur of um, preventing disaster. You write, time holds us captive to paradoxes. And it got me thinking that in a lot of ways, we're sometimes stuck between the present and the past and then somewhere in between and wondering what the future is, that we're not really completely there within our own time. Being in the moment, it sounds like such a cliche. I mean, a friend of mine, when I told her I was writing about time, she said, please, 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 can you just do something about this obsession? I'm so fed up with people telling me to be in the moment. I'll just punch the next person. I thought, that's not very Buddhist of you. Um, Because although it sounds like kind of Hollywood um, jargon, something Gwyneth Paltrow might come at you with, it's actually an ancient sort of aspiration to just be here right now and take stock. Um, I'm slightly irritated by the idea of mindfulness because it it suggests that people have forgotten just how to be bored. I think the truth is human beings, we're all time machines because we we live our lives suspended on this kind of bridge between our past and our memories and our sense of what our future should be. So we're always traveling and our mind is always wandering. And the busier mind is, the more full it is of memories or ambitions the harder it gets to live in the moment. That's where children have the edge on us, really, because they're not so conscious that their life has to be a story of purpose. You know, they don't think, I've got to make so however many thousand pounds this year or I can't look at myself in the mirror. You know, they they can take life at face value and just live it. You know, as a tool, this is where we as a species have a huge advantage over all others. And that's why time is so incredible. If you think about it as, as a kind of compass, your sense of self you know simply believing in the future and planning for it gives you incredible powers to to create what you want I mean one of the bits of research that I found fascinating and I you and obviously true when you hear it is that the richer your and more detailed your memory is the more likely you are to have a really strong capacity to envisage your future in detail so there's a great correlation between our sense of the past and our our capacity to build our future. And and something even more compelling and quite sad really was the studies asking people to sort of think about themselves, you know, 20 or 30 years down the line. And people who've got deeper empathy and the ability to see the point of view of others are more likely to have kind of warm and friendly feelings for their future selves. And and those kind of people are the ones who are more likely to have good impulse control and very likely secure a decent future for that, you know, far away future, old wrinkled version of themselves. Whereas people who don't really have any warm or strong feelings for their future selves are also likely to be ones with very poor impulse control and live a slightly more chaotic life. I mean, it makes sense. So, you know, it's a great advantage to live in the future and the past but you know to actually enjoy your life if you're always worrying about the future you li- you live in a climate of anxiety and i think that's one of the things that has become much more intense in the last 15 20 years i think there's a direct connection between all the demands we now face and all the distractions and interruptions and this kind of fearfulness about the future 
um, whether it's simply that we haven't answered 50 emails or we know that when we open our, you know, turn our turn on our computer in the morning we'll have a hundred things to do that we haven't completed simply being bombarded and accessible 24 7 in this whole new way thanks to our little time machines on our you know on our desks and in our handbags that that creates a different sense of time in a way that makes it increasingly hard just to sit still be with another person look them in the eye and enjoy their company we've the climate of distraction and and continuous partial attention is what they call it, where you're sort of monitoring five things at once but never really doing one in particular. That's changing our outlook and our relationships with one another. And I don't think people realise how new and how worth, worth sort of questioning it all is. Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's lovely to have your company this evening. Well, on tonight's show, I'm talking with British journalist and writer Catherine Bly, whose new book, On Time, Finding Your Pace in a World Addicted to Fast, has just been published by HarperCollins, where Catherine writes, We are living in a new sort of time, and it is creating a new sort of us. Our instinctive response is to speed up, but we will gain far more from these glorious freedoms if we slowed down and concentrated. Catherine goes on to argue, saying no to technology is fast becoming the greatest time pressure in our lives. 
I asked Catherine about the link between persistent time pressure and stress and anxiety. And one of her case studies, a lady called Jane, a busy and overworked business executive whose health collapsed due to her inability to slow down. The woman who'd had a stroke, the thing about her, she, she had been an extremely effective um, professional with a very high-powered job. She's one of those brilliant multitaskers. And then she lost her ability to measure time, which is something it took doctors forever to work out what exactly was wrong with her. Because on the surface, she was completely unchanged. She was still very articulate. She could move around physically very well. There was no sort of she wasn't limping. There was no no clear thing they could put their finger on. But she had no way of knowing whether she'd spoken for too long or of guessing when, when she put something in the oven, you know, whether it would be burnt. It sounds like a sort of small technical problem, but she described it as feeling like an astronaut cast adrift in outer space and that no one could hear her because she, she simply couldn't plan or interact in a normal way. You know, just to have a conversation face-to-face, you need to know when it's your turn to stop talking. She said, stopping talking and letting you get your next question in frightening condition it's almost hard to um get your head around it but i would imagine it would pervade every aspect of life that in in a way makes general social interaction well, next imagine, to impossible yes you just wouldn't know when to stop walking yeah. how to get somewhere i mean if you think about it our sense of time is in, is crucial to almost every action we take so just crossing a road how do you know how fast something is going how do you know what point you need to start moving forward how do you know when to stop moving your left leg and stop moving your right leg? All these are functions of time that we don't think about. Thank goodness. Imagine if you had to think about it. You wouldn't even be able to brush your teeth. What do you make of flexible working uh, time and flexible working hours, the idea of working from home? Because a lot of people end up captive to email as a result because they're always feeling that there's no safe ground, there's no private ground, there's no no sacred space anywhere within your life because once you embrace the flexible, well, it's all to play for. It's not, not, even if you don't embrace it, it may well be imposed upon you. I mean, it's a tremendous freedom living in a world where you can talk to 50 people in multiple different time zones, more or less simultaneously. It allow you know, it unleashes vast human potential. I love it. But the trouble with all these freedoms is that we don't feel free. We feel enslaved. You know, if, if you work in uh, any kind of corporate setting and you deal with people in, in other continents and they all expect everything now, 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 because affluence breeds impatience. That's one of its key features. You you can feel that there's not a square inch of your life that is your own, that because we don't have the same physical barriers between work and home, you know, there's something wonderful about it. Feels like a thousand years ago, the time when people's daily lives were structured around leaving the office, having lunch. You know, the architecture of time in your life was had a steady rhythm to it. And it it meant that people had to pause and break and move away. Flexi time is demanded of people, whether or not they do a nine to five or more likely an eight to eight working day because because of these technologies. And I think our, our culture urgently needs to change. I think France is the first country to legislate for the idea that people should have time to unplug 
So companies where people, which employ a certain number of people, larger businesses, are not allowed to email them out of office hours and expect a reply. But I think the overload that this is producing is, you know, there are numerous problems. A, people are not thinking very hard about communication. They're sending emails willy-nilly because, you know, your words look rather smartly arranged on the on the white kind of um, virtual page and and they CC everyone because they think they're demonstrating that they're working and so you're forced to read all these other emails which you perhaps don't need to. I think really when you look at what it does for actual time to do tasks, it's quite worrying. I mean, the statistic I have in the book is 28% of um, people's working day are taken up with email, but I think that under underestimates it and it doesn't take into account all the other media we're dealing with. If one third of a corporate day goes on meetings, when exactly does work get done? You know, the problem metastasizes because you have all this leftover sludge of work to deal with and you can't get it done in the office. So then you have to do it at home. Flexi time in theory, if it truly were flexible, is amazing. I mean, if if you can set your own time for tasks, you can fit them around other things you want to do in your day and you can switch off when you want to. If if that's what flexi time meant, then I'm all for it. But I think we're at this point where we're dealing with the potential and the problems of new technology, but we haven't really got the policies that, that make it workable and humane. I mean, there's a, a Japanese word, I think it's karoshi, which it's a concept that death through overwork and you know, whether it's suicide or just dropping dead of a heart attack. And I think that that problem is, is, is quite widespread. And we pay the tax in anxiety, um, in alcohol abuse, depression, and, you know, the rising tide of mental illness. Yeah. But it takes real power and leadership and an appreciation of human capital. The trouble is we live in a world where everyone's meant to feel desperate to get a job. So employers... I think are taking advantage. You quote a 2014 um, poll which showed that over, I think it was over a third of British employees um, don't use their holiday entitlements. And it was shocking to see how I addicted... I was that. It was sh- how addicted people, people are... Um, <laughs> I always take my holiday. Yeah, I, I, I stretch things beyond belief because I actually believe in the more time you have for privacy, hobbies um, and space in your life, the you know the, the greater the critical thinking. And it's true. I yeah. mean, the richer you are, the more resources you yeah. have. I mean, you work in a creative industry, so, you know, maybe it's easier for you to make that case. But let's take another example, student doctors. I love this statistic. So student doctors on a nine-hour shift will see more patients during those nine hours than student doctors on a 12-hour shift. Because actually put, having an end stop to the day, it focuses the mind, you know, l- trying to do stuff within a limited time frame is useful. Certain time pressures are great. If people are never given a chance to switch off, then their mind never rests. And I know that in my case, and pretty much everyone, you get your best ideas when you're not looking for them, when you actually take a mental break. You have 59% of employees check their email while on holidays. This was another survey Mm. you mentioned. I found that so bloody depressing. But has it come to the stage where we have to say, you know, put an out in office saying I'm on a silent Buddhist retreat? Because it seems that we have become so obsessed with appearing to be switched on all of the time. 
It's yeah, so well, I redundant. Think demonstrating busyness has become a massive preoccupation. Demonstrating your presence and demonstrating your commitment can almost seem more important than actually doing your job really well. The trouble is that, you know, a FaceTime working culture, you know, where you have the kind of office where no one dares to leave before 10 o'clock because the boss doesn't leave until then. So everyone's trying to compete to show how devoted they are to their jobs. The reason cultures like that operate, I mean, aside from them being, you know, in theory, good for the company's bottom line, is because it's much easier to rate someone's presence and the time they've put in than actually the quality of their work. You know, it's an unsubtle measure. And again, we, we've all been traumatized. I mean, the credit crunch 10 years ago, when that all started happening. Um, but we're very much encouraged to see ourselves as disposable elements. So you have this kind of one-way loyalty street where you're meant to show that you'll do, you know, give 110%, as they might say, on X Factor to your job and in the full expectation that you'll be ditched tomorrow if someone younger, cheaper, more energetic and more devoted is going to, you know, they'll take up your spot, no problem. So that, that's not an issue I, my book can solve exactly. But what, what I'm hoping to convey to people is that however unfree you feel with your time, how you arrange it, small changes can help you reap an awful lot more from it. I mean, just simply reintroducing breaks. You may not be allowed to go off for a two-hour lunch break to the nearest wine bar. That might not be a good idea for you anyway, but as long as you make sure that you introduce some rhythm in the day and some contrast, you're actually going to find it a lot easier to do that hard work and to focus and to also just to feel free. You know, busyness, what drives me crazy about feeling rushed is I feel I'm chasing that to-do list. I'm like the servant of a clock. I'm running after it like the white rabbit in Alice in Wonderland. And I'm not, I'm not in control of my time or my choices or even the pace. As soon as you feel like you, you're setting the agenda, you're, you know what you're doing when you get it done, you make sure that you're looking after yourself or that you, you slow down when you need to, you, you can feel a lot calmer and, and just that's, tiny little shift can allow you to concentrate more and to to feel more empowered you know harness the momentum in your day instead of feeling like you're rushing and rushing so treat it like the fridge you can declutter it is that it well yes i definitely think that um you know just as i was saying earlier about in the past people's days were structured around sort of common rhythms you know people mostly went to work at the same time and so on you you can use your own routine uh, as a way of managing time for you without having to constantly micromanage it, which is boring and stressful. So I encourage readers at the end of the book, where I, so I discuss various different issues um, to do with procrastination, say, or your body clock and how actually we can improve the timing of our lives. Um, and then there's a practical exercise, and it's quite simple, really. Just keep a diary of a sort of representative stretch of time to actually looking look at what you're doing. You may feel you're terribly busy, but when you see those words on paper, you might just see that you're doing the same thing again and again, and you're just being interrupted and actually not getting much done. Yeah. And once you once you kind of edit, once you've got your routine, what it, the reality is, then you can begin to edit it and to try and harvest moments where you can be much more productive. I mean, I think the best single, actually there are two things that I personally have taken away from it, researching this book and 
and writing about it, the, the things that have made the biggest change for me is, you know, finding a moment at the beginning of the day when, you know, when the, I've got rid of the children, I'm at my desk, but make sure that I've got at least 10 minutes before I begin. And that might mean setting up, setting off earlier to just do something I want to do just for me, something frivolous. It could be reading a book, 